couple months ago, a good-looking 28-year-old guy came into my office. Uh, he, he was sent to see me. He doesn't go to church here. He's not from San Antonio. And uh, I'm going to call him Rick Martin today. That's not his name, but I want to call him that just to protect his own identity. And uh, Rick's life had just been absolutely destroyed. And it was his own fault. He, he sat there with me. He's weeping and uh, he's just shaking, you know, just snot running down his nose. And uh, Rick had just lost the most important person in his life. It was his girlfriend that he had been developing a relationship with over the last six years. And he was no longer going to be able to see her. And it was his fault. And he was destroyed about it. Well, I told Rick, I said, Rick, I can help you, but it isn't going to make you feel better. If you want, together, we can figure out how you got to this place in your life. And he really didn't have many other options, and so he agreed. And we began to look at his life story, and we discovered that Rick had a gaping father wound. You see, Rick was one of six siblings, but he looked completely different than all of his other siblings, and his dad treated him differently. His other siblings could do something. Dad wouldn't say anything. Rick would do the same thing. He'd get in trouble. His dad was just always riding him and on him. And one day, he actually told him, he said, you're not one of us. You're not a Martin. And he disowned his son. Well, as you can imagine, Rick was deeply hurt, so much so that he just, he rejected everything that his father believed. And he was just a young teenager in high school, just starting high school when all of this happened. And so he just went on his own. And as often happens, things didn't go very well for him. Rick got addicted and and these patterns began to develop in his life. And one of the patterns that actually developed is that Rick ended up just with a lot of different relationships with different girls. And, you know, I understood that. I mean, he was in high school. I get all of that. But I just said, Rick, why so many? And he told me, he said, John, I just wanted someone to want me. And I thought, you know, isn't that really what all of us want, right? We all want to be wanted. We all want to be loved. We want friends that will accept us just like we are. We want the respect of our colleagues at work. We long for the unconditional love of our spouse who says, I'm so glad I married you and not someone else. We want to know that the people who hired us maybe, you know, give us a raise and just say, we're so glad we hired you and we hope you'll stay a long time. Y'all, we, we all yearn for that resounding vote of confidence from the person who means the most to us so that we can know that we're legitimate, that we belong, that we're loved, that we're wanted. And yet sometimes whenever you and I compare ourselves with other people, we often wonder why anyone would want us. When we start making comparisons, we realize that we're not the prettiest, we're not the smartest, we're not the fastest, we're not the best at anything. We may feel like I'm not strong enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not, I don't know enough, I'm not good enough. Why would anyone want me? And then, of course, there's always that time in our lives where occasionally we look at that hidden part of ourselves, 
the part that we never allow anyone else to take a look at, and we realize that we may actually be worse off than anyone else thinks we are. You don't love you, and you don't want you. Why would anyone else want you? And that's actually the reason that some of us go to church. We go to try to figure ourselves out, how we got to be like we are. And we wonder, you know, like, what can I do about it? But you know that religion isn't always helpful. Sometimes you go looking for God and things actually get worse. And I think that often happens because of one of the assumptions that many of us have about God. We assume that whatever everyone else thinks about us and how you feel about yourself, God must at least think that about you or maybe he thinks worse than that about you because God has some expectations that are pretty high and some of them are hard to meet. And so our own understanding of God can actually make things worse. We're not sure what God is like. We aren't sure who we are. We don't know how to relate well to anyone else. And so we end up like Rick Martin in search of love, in search of a relationship, in search of ourselves. So who are we? That's the question that we want to ask. It's really kind of the question we want to ask all summer. Who are we? How do we balance what we've done with who we are? How are we supposed to think about ourselves? If you believe in God, if you're open to him, maybe you're wondering what he thinks about you. And you might even be wondering, what could a relationship with him do to you? How could it change your life? Well, this summer, as we go through the book of Ephesians, we chose this book because we think Ephesians answers these kinds of questions, the kind of questions that Rick Martin was asking. And today, we want to start this series by looking at what the Apostle Paul said about how we end up in these places in our lives where things are about as bad as they can be. And unfortunately, uh, the news that Paul gives us may actually be worse than we actually think. Here's what he said. Paul said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Now, I want you to notice that when Paul wrote this, he began by looking at what our lives used to be like before we were in relationship with God. That's what he means by this little phrase, in which you used to live. Paul is talking about people's lives who are not in a relationship with God. And he describes that condition as being dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, the word dead means here in this verse to be separated from God. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be, but what it does mean is, is at that point, we were as bad off as we could be. It was kind of like we were Rick Martin. We had just flushed our lives. To be dead is you and me at our worst. And the Apostle Paul said that whenever we are in this condition, whenever we're separated from God, we all have a tendency 
Tell me whether or not you've experienced this. We all tend to dumb life down as low as it can go to its most basic fundamental things. In fact, Paul said it this way. He said, all of us also lived at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. What Paul meant by that was is that we have this tendency when we're separated from God to dumb life down to where we get up every day and the only real concern that we have is to gratify our own cravings. Some of the more common cravings that you and I do gratify are things like addictions, like we saw in Rick, or multiple relationships, or it can even be good things. The cravings can even be good things, accomplishments that we hope to make. And so we think things like, man, if I can just you know, snort one more line of cocaine, then my life will be happy. Or if I can just get one more girl, if I can just find one more guy, then maybe my life will be happy. Or we think if I could just get promoted at work, or maybe if I go back to school and get another degree, then my life will be happy. Or maybe we even dumb it down further and think if I can just buy one more shiny object, then my life will be happy. And the thing about all of these is, is that when we gratify our cravings for a while, it makes us happy. But then it won't. And so if the emptiness of pursuing, pursuing cravings isn't bad enough, Paul said that it actually gets worse. There's more bad news. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is awesome, isn't it? He said, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, even if you don't know what the word wrath means in the New Testament, you know it's not good, right? And actually, the word wrath means in this verse that God gives us over to the consequences of our cravings. You see, God made you and me in his image, therefore we are free to make choices because God is completely free. But we are not free of the consequences of the choices that we make. And so whenever we make these choices that separated from God, dumb life down, gratifying our cravings, what happens is it starts this downward spiral in our lives until finally we hit bottom. In fact, many of us at points like that often feel like we're kinda at the bottom of the bottle. We feel a lot like Rick Martin felt that day in my office. Now, let me just ask you, do you guys know what is at the bottom of the bottle? Yeah, I know somebody does, right? Well, I did a little research on this. It wasn't real research, it was just a Google search, right? But I did a little bit of research yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, you got it. And there's a, there seems to be general agreement that the last swig in the bottle is about 40% backwash. We're talking spit here, right? And so that's why if you had a friend or a mother or dad who loved you, and they said, hey, whatever you do when you're out drinking with your friends, having a Coke or beer or whatever, and you're sharing this about, don't take the last swig, Right? And some of you are thinking, Witty, where were you yesterday, man? I, oh, last night, and God, and you're grossed out right now. Okay, well, I've told you. And that's how some of us feel, right? 
Some of us feel, or you know someone who feels like they're the 40% backwash. They're spit. They've lost everything. They're as bad off as they can be. They're, they're addicted. They're at their worst. They're lonely. They're hurting. They're longing for someone to love them. And what are you supposed to do with the last, the backwash? The, what's it, what are you supposed to do with it? Pour it out, right? And that's how some of us feel. Some of you feel like you've been poured out. You can't get over your guilt because you're at the bottom of the bottle. Your spouse walked out on you because you're at the bottom of the bottle. You can't get the job, the one you really want, because you're at the bottom of the bottle. Your finances are you know, cratering and you can't turn them around because you're at the bottom of the bottle. There's really no sense of a grand purpose in your life. You don't know why you get up every day except you wake up and you just gotta go pay for all those shiny objects that you bought because you're at the bottom of the bottle. And y'all, there's some truth to this. Some of us are as bad off as we can be and that's why we're here today hoping to find some help. So how does God feel about us when we've wrecked our lives and when we're at the bottom of the bottle? Does he think, oh, you're just backwashed? Does he just pour you out? Is that what God thinks about you and me? Well, here's what I want us to do today. I don't want to make up an answer to that question. I want us to let God tell us in his own words what he actually thinks about you and me when we are dead in our transgressions and sins, okay? Here's what God says. He says, but because of his great love for us. Let's just stop right there. The apostle Paul said, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that even when you and I were dead in transgressions and sins, when we were at the bottom of the bottle, God still, what? He loved us. And Paul didn't just use the word love. He could have just said because of his love for us. No, he had to add an adjective, his great love for us. God has done something to show you and me that he has a great love for us. Now, we all know because we've been burned by this, we all know that it's easy to say, oh, I love you, right? Some of you got fooled by that. You're in a relationship right now, and he or she has proven that they don't really love you, or some of you got married to someone who said, oh, yeah, I love you, I love you, but they didn't love you. And so it's easy to say, I love you. It's actions that show that we actually love, right? And so in this verse, I want to show you Three things that God did to show, to prove, to demonstrate his love for us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, number one, made us alive with Christ. Number two, and God raised us up with Christ. And number three, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, whenever you and I were at the very bottom in our life, we were the bottom of the bottle, but then we heard something about Jesus and we responded to that and we believed in him, then God took us and he raised us to the very top of the universe, to the heavenly realms. He took us from the bottom to the top in Christ. And that is how God has shown his love for us. How technically does that actually happen? 
Well, there's this thing, this theological term, and I know most of you don't care, but I love stuff like this, right? I mean, like, so just give me 30 seconds. There's this theological term called substitutionary atonement. And it is God's way of forgiving sin and reestablishing a relationship. Whenever someone is out of relationship with God in the Bible, what he always does is he makes a substitution for that, per, for that sin. You see, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's sin that separates us from God. It is sin that causes death. And so God, in order to forgive our sin, has to be just in doing so. He cannot simply forgive sin and say, oh, it's okay, you didn't mean to. He can't do that. He has, sin has to be paid for. Either you can pay for it or God can pay for it. So in substitutionary atonement, what he does is he takes the person who is guilty, who should pay for their sin, and instead of requiring it of them, he substitutes another person in their place and forgives our sin. And y'all, this is what he did for us when he gave his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He should have never died. You and I have lived sinful lives. We should die. But what he did is whenever Jesus died on the cross for us, he substituted Jesus for us. Christ took our place. And when he died, he paid for your sin so that you and I could be forgiven and restored to a relationship with God. And listen to this. When you personally believe that Jesus died for you. Not that he just died on the cross, but that he died for you. And when you receive him as your own personal savior, Paul says that God takes you from the bottom and he sets you at the top of the universe with Christ together with him. That's how he does it. Now, Mm. <laughs> Why does he do this for us? Well, Paul told us. <laughs> in order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This phrase right here, expressed in his kindness to us, that refers to what we just talked about. Jesus dying for us, his kindness to us. Paul said that that was an expression of the incomparable riches of his grace. Now I want us to tear this verse down, this phrase, and I want us to understand each word, but let's start at the last word and work our way back, okay? The word grace means undeserved favor. You do this, you've done this before, or you've had it done to you. If you've ever done something for someone that they didn't deserve, okay, get that picture in your mind? If you've ever done something for someone that they didn't deserve, you showed them grace. Now, you may not have been happy about it, and if you weren't, you're probably walking off mumbling to yourself that they didn't deserve it, right? Well, they didn't deserve it. <laughs> That's the nature of grace, right? It was undeserved favor. That's what God did for us. He showed us grace when Jesus died for us. But Paul didn't stop there. He said he didn't just show us grace. He showed us the riches of his grace. He showed us a lot 
of grace, right? But Paul didn't stop there. He added a third term. He showed us the incomparable riches of his grace. I love this word. It's my favorite word in the whole verse. The word incomparable in Greek is a compound word. It's made up of two Greek words, huper, which means over, and balo, which means to throw, to throw over. In other words, God had so much grace on us that he had to throw it over us. Let me illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine that your life is not going very well. You're Rick Martin. But instead of coming to my office, you decide to go eat. And so you go to this restaurant, and it's called God's Restaurant. And your waiter comes, and he looks uncannily like Jesus. Whatever you think Jesus looks like, okay? And so he comes, and you're sitting here, and you're saying, Dude, my life's so bad. I heard you guys serve grace here. I can't afford much. Could you just bring me an appetizer of grace? You know, just one of those little plates of grace. And so Jesus leaves, and he goes to fill your order. <clears throat> and you notice when he comes back, he's kind of like humping this bag out there. It's not like, what's going on? And he gets to you, and he throws it up on your table, and he says, I, I know, I know you just wanted an appetizer, Grace, but my father wanted you to know how much he loves you, and so he wanted me to bring you a buffet. You can just have all you want. And then I can just sort of see Jesus wildly, wide-eyed, staring you in the eyes, maybe a little drool rolling down his beard because he's so happy. Say, can you believe it, man? You can have all you want anytime you need it. That's what incomparable means. God, because of his great love for us, in Christ Jesus demonstrated to you and me the incomparable riches of his grace. And that is why Paul followed this verse with two of the most famous verses in the New Testament. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Yeah, all you did was order an appetizer and he gave you a buffet. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You know, why does God gift us with this much grace? Why does he show us this much love? Well, in the very last verse that we want to consider today, Paul told us why. Look at what he said. He said, for we, no, yes, for we, I'm making Greg guess, for we are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus, when you believed in him, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The reason that God gives you and me a buffet of grace is because we are God's masterpiece. Now, this word masterpiece in the Greek language is the word poema. It's the, we get our word poem from it, right? You can hear it. Poem, poem. Poema, hear that? That's the word, and it means a masterpiece. It means a greatest work. We could even call it a magnum opus. That's where this title for the series came from, a magnum opus. Now, here's the really cool thing about this word, and it's big. So 
hang with me for five minutes, maybe, not that long. It's big. <coughs> it's only used two times in the New Testament. One is here, but there's another time that Paul used it in Romans 1.20, and I want to show you this verse. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. This is a combination. What has been made is the word poema. It's a combination of Greek words. So that we are without excuse. In other words, if we just saw the universe, if we just saw what God created, we would know that there is a God. And so the poema here, God's masterpiece, refers to the creation of the world. It refers to that phrase right there, the creation of the world. And when you hear the word world, don't think earth, think universe. In other words, Paul said that God's greatest work, his magnum opus, his masterpiece is the creation of the universe. I happen to believe that at the Big Bang, God caused the universe to come into existence. He created matter and caused it to exist when before that time, no matter had existed. And Paul says that it was his poema. It was his greatest work. In fact, I want to give you three mind-blowing facts about the universe. Number one, our sun is one of 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, our own galaxy. 100 billion stars. Our sun is one of 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. Scientists now believe, through observation from the Hubble telescope, that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe, and they estimate that there are more stars in the universe than there are kernel, grains of sand on all of the Earth's beaches. That is a magnum opus. That is God's greatest work, but that is so big we can hardly imagine it. Just come down to our own galaxy. Our Milky Way is so big that if you were in a spaceship traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years just to go across our galaxy. And scientists think there's 100 billion of them that make up the universe. Okay, that's too big to imagine. Come to our own solar system. If the sun were the size of your front door, now we're getting down to where we can handle it, right? If the sun were the size of your front door, the earth would be the size of a nickel and then put eight billion of us on that nickel. This is why Neil deGrasse Tyson, the physicist, is fond of saying this. If your ego starts out, I'm important, I'm big, I'm special, he says, you're in for some disappointments. No, you're not big, you are small in time and space. Y'all, we're one of eight billion people on a nickel. And that's how some of us feel. But now I want to show you something that should rock your world. Paul disagreed with Neil deGrasse Tasson. And this is why. This is what he said. Paul said, for we, for we are God's masterpiece. So, let me put it together for you. We really don't know how old the universe is. 
We're guessing, but it's millions, hundreds of millions of years old. At some point in the past, at the beginning of time, at the Big Bang, God created the universe. And it's unbelievable. It was his magnum opus. It was his masterpiece. It was his greatest work. But then Paul said, at some point in time, God created humans in his own image. And he said that at that point in time, the universe ceased to be God's magnum opus. It ceased to be his greatest work. And you are his greatest work. I didn't say that. God said it. We are God's masterpiece. That is why he gave Jesus to die for you and me. You are his Michelangelo's creation of Adam painted on the Sistine Chapel. You are Leonardo's Da Vinci, Mona Lisa. You are Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. If none of that means anything to you, you're the Doobie Brothers' China Grove. You're God's magnum opus. You're his greatest work. You are not small. You are not insignificant. No matter how much you've messed your life up, God loves you. It's why he gave Jesus to die for you. And it tells us how much he loves us. It tells us how much he wants us. And so, Father, I pray today that you would help us to grasp the significance of your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. You're his magnum opus. You're his greatest work. That's why he gave his son to die for you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor and just say to him, you're God's magnum opus. Just say that to one another. You're God's magnum opus. Oh my God, there's a million good things that come from that, right? You're hugging each other like, whoa! There's so much good news that comes from this one truth. So on that day, when Rick Martin came to my office, I essentially told him all of this. And then I said, Rick, receive God's love, receive it. And you know what he did? The one person who loved him unconditionally and wanted him, he didn't want him. Y'all, let's don't make that mistake. And so, Father, I pray for us. Maybe there's some here today who, they've never heard this. This is like blowing their mind that you could possibly love them this much. And they've been dead. They've been separated from you. They've been far from you. But as they heard this word about Jesus and how he died for them, their heart was attracted to him. And and Lord, I pray that today they would do what many of us have done. They would personally say, Jesus, I believe you died for me and I receive you as my savior. And then Lord, I know that there are many of us who have believed, but at some point we just started living for these basic cravings, gratifying those and 
We experience this downward spiral till we've hit bottom and we can't imagine that you would still love us like that. Lord, today, I pray that you would overwhelm us, super ballo, throw over us a buffet of grace and invite us to have all the grace we want. Do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said,